Would you bet a few thousand dollars that you could sink an eight-foot putt? What about 10 grand that you could win a drag race against a Camaro with a thousand horsepower? If you bet $2 million, could you bet it all on one football game? Maybe you wish you could, but you probably wouldn't. Gamblers is about the people who did. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network comes Gamblers Season 2. Listen now. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Welcome back into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now from the NHL on TNT, it is Lamb McHugh. Lamb, thanks so much for taking some time, man. We really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me on. This is great. Yeah, well, we're excited because, like, the Patriots season ended, and now we get, like, the two winter teams that have been rolling, so we don't have to really worry about the Patriots anymore. And it's been incredible to watch the way that the Bruins have really started this season. I don't think anybody really had this type of expectation for this team. Like, we thought, okay, they're going to be a playoff team. But you look at it right now, I mean, they're on pace for 66 wins. The record is 62. They're on pace for 139 points. The record there is 132. Preseason, they come in with the 12th best odds, according to FanDuel, to win the Cup. Now, of course, they're number one. But how crazy has it been to cover this story from a national level? Because we here locally had no idea. You guys must have been like, what the heck's happened to this Bruins team? It's been incredible to watch. Uh, You know, I I go back to the very beginning of the season when we started talking about uh, the Bruins, Pittsburgh, and Washington in the East as kind of these aging teams. And can you keep the championship window open? And our whole discussion was based on which one of these teams should have punted, should have basically said, this isn't happening this year. It's probably not happening next year with this group. Let's start moving on. Let's start putting the pieces. And it was like an interesting debate. I mean, it it wasn't clear cut. Uh, In fact, I think most people at this point, uh, at the beginning of the season, most of the guys on the panel actually thought Pittsburgh was the most likely team to go on and win a cup because they were bringing people back and they seemed a little bit healthier. Uh, the story with Boston was they come into the season, they're aging. Krejci comes back. You don't know what to expect. They had injuries to key players, including uh, top pairing on um, defense and, of course, Brad Marchand. So this whole thing was, can they tread water? And instead of treading water, uh, I, I remember I said this, and you know, 
two weeks ago, uh, someone said they're not treading water. It's Michael Phelps out there just lapping people in the pool. <laughs> and it really feels that way. It's crazy. And then guys come back early and they immediately gel. It's a wild story, uh, considering we thought maybe they would hang on, maybe make another run, get into the playoffs. And now they are clearly the favorite to win the whole thing. And you can talk about a team that is probably going to have the coach of the year, could have the Selkie Trophy winner again in Bergeron, who let's just rename the award. Let's just get that done with. It should be the Bergeron from now on. Uh, Pasternak could win the MVP. Certainly going to be right in the mix. And then you have big time surprises, which is what you need to be in this situation, I think, if you're Boston. And the big time surprises are Olmark and Nett, who's a Vesna candidate, and Ampis Lindholm, who is a sneaky Norris candidate. He's never going to win it. He's probably not going to be a finalist. Not enough points, not enough flash. But he's that good defensively, and he's going to set – you know, personal records for points. So you get surprises, you get guys you can count on, and then you get guys on one-year deals like Krejci and Bergeron playing at an elite level. It, it's been awesome to watch. All right, so before I get into some of the guys you mentioned, because I do want to get into Pasta, because I do think he's making a case right now for the Hart Trophy, as you mentioned. But so now we're 40 games in. I mentioned some of the on-pace records. Do you think they have a chance to get either one of those based on the way they've played? I, I do. Uh, I really do. I, now, the injury to DeBrusque, Hurts because, uh, you know, he, he was having a career year and he seemed really happy. And it's, it was basically a 180 from last year and the year before, just this idea that he wanted out and wasn't happy with the role, wasn't happy with the situation. Now, happy, playing well, was so great in the Winter Classic. While injured, we now know that's going to hurt them. What I like about the Bruins to get those records is that they win games when they're not on their A game, uh, which is impressive. And I think it speaks to the leadership of this group. And we've seen that for years. And we've really seen it specifically this year uh, behind, you know, closed door meetings uh, about personal matters on ice matters. This team handles its business. They come to play. They come with an edge every night so that even when they're not zipping it around and snapping it around on the power play and scoring beautiful goals, they can grind their way to wins. I, I looked uh, like last night, the Oilers, they lose the Kings. and. The elite players don't put on a show and the Oilers can't win. They cannot win those games unless it is the dry side on McDavid show. The Bruins can. And because of that and because of their depth, I, I think they can reach those numbers. Well, it's a great point. I mean, it, it, it reminds me of the game you guys had, the Winter Classic, right? The Bruins were not good through the first two periods and they grinded out. They win that game. DeBrus was obviously huge in that game, the last game he played due to the injury. But that's a perfect example of what you're saying when their A game isn't there. So, Getting to Pasternak, so right now you look at it, he's second in goals, he's third in points behind the two guys that you mentioned from Edmonton. Obviously, McDavid leads the world in like every statistical category, but I think if you were going to make a case for Pasta, it's the Bruins continue on a really good pace, and they win the President's Cup trophy and all that, and then Pasta's somewhere in that top five in both goals and points, and if you combine that with the team's success, would that give him a case to maybe get the bump over McDavid? I know we're a long way away from getting there, but Pasta right now, I mean, you could argue he's as hot as he's ever been over the past week and change. I know this is a, uh, a Boston podcast, and if I've learned anything from Keith Jones, it should be to pander to the people <laughs> who are your audience. So if I was Keith Jones right now, I would tell you that Pasta would definitely win the MVP, and then I'd go on another podcast and tell people what they want to hear. Uh, and I know Jones, he's never... Uh, this isn't going to get back to him, so I'll just bad mouth him behind his back. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't think there's any catching the game. I, I just don't. I, I think the numbers are going to be too ridiculous. Uh, his lead at the end of this could be, 
you know, 35, 40 points over everyone who's not Leon Dreisaitl. Uh, you know, it, it's it's otherworldly. Um, it's it's numbers we haven't seen since the 80s. So, no, I think McDavid is that guy. I think uh, Pasta is the runner-up uh, on a year where you'll look back and be like, I cannot believe the numbers David Pasternak put up and didn't win MVP. And then you'll have to go over to McDavid and be like, oh, all right, I get it. Like, th- those were absurd. Uh, that being said, I mean, he has a chance to be a finalist for the Hart Trophy. He has a chance to win the Rocket Richard. He has a chance to, and a much, much greater chance to win a cup. And then the big question is, you know, how much is he going to get paid? And is he going to be here? And it, the, I mean, if you look at the comparables, I mean, Artemi Panarin, a wing, uh, making over 11 a year, eight years he got uh, from the Rangers. And I look at Pasnock at his age, and unless he wants to take some hometown discount, which maybe he will. He's got to, he, he demands that money and he deserves that. Money. So uh, we'll see, but he, he has been unreal. And there's no reason to believe the, the cool thing about Pasternak is at 26 an eight year deal of that money is not a bad deal. It's a, it's a good deal. Yeah, exactly. And I, I am kind of surprised at this point because I kept hearing like, Hey, don't worry about it. It's going to get done eventually. But I mean, we're halfway through the season now and it's not done like on a national level. Are you guys starting to wonder like, holy crap, could he get out of Boston? Like, is he actually going to test free agency? I mean, we always assumed he was just going to be here long term, but it's starting to get to that point where it feels like it might go down to the last minute. Yeah, you know, it's like week by week, we've, we've had this conversation. We're like, oh, should we talk about this yet? And guys are like, no, 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 it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And then we got into a little bit of, we almost went on the air with just a little bit of chatter about, uh, you know, hometown discount. Did you get that? And, and we brought it up a bit. Uh, we haven't taken it further. I, I think mainly because everyone's rolling right now and everyone's happy and there doesn't appear to be too much tension or animosity. I, I think it'd be a different situation if this was a struggling team and he was performing and he felt Uh, underappreciated. It doesn't feel that way right now, but it's also a team that has to figure things out for the future as well, because there is this last dance vibe to this team, right? Uh, Bergeron, you never know. Krejci feels like if Krejci comes back and he wins a Stanley Cup, I I can see him walking off into the sunset as well. One-year deal. Bergeron winning a Stanley Cup, I can see him walking off the sunset, even though Bergeron has said uh, what everything, everything I've heard about Bergeron is it's up to him, right? One-year deal. He figures out what he wants to do, but he holds himself to a standard that no one else holds him, holds him to. If he feels that he's still playing at an elite level and still wants to do it, he'll play. It looks to us, right, that he's playing at an elite level, but only he can make that decision. However, if you win a cup and you're Patrice Bergeron, what a way to walk off. What a way to walk off. So I think there's so much uncertainty surrounding that that maybe they're just waiting to the end. But right now, it's it's all good vibes. It's all positive. So I would assume still at this point that they're, you know, setting themselves up for bringing him back. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because it, you're right. It's not something that's like hanging over the organization. It's clearly not affecting pasta on the ice or off the ice or any of the guys on the team. But you mentioned Bergeron and that they should rename the Selkie for him. And it would be interesting if they win if he would walk off. And I also think that if Bergeron gets another cup, it sort of puts him in another stratosphere. I remember listening to the pregame show that you guys had, and Gretzky was comparing him to Mark Messi. And Messi is obviously one of the great winners in the history of the sports, got that one in 94 after leaving Edmonton with the Rangers. And you just think about this era, like obviously the new guys, McDavid, et cetera, that's in a different group. But 
it's been Crosby and it's been Ovechkin, and deservingly so. Those guys have won. I mean, Ovechkin's got the one cup. Crosby's got, what, three cups. But it almost does feel like in a weird way that, and I know Montgomery pointed out he's never cheated the game, Bergeron. It almost does feel like his career, not locally, like people love Bergeron here, but it's almost been underrated. And I do wonder if he gets that second cup, if it sort of puts him in a different stratosphere. I think it's a fair argument because uh, as good as he is, as great as he is, uh, as beloved as he is in Boston, uh, he is an underrated national and international athlete. He just is. Uh, And if you get another cup and who knows if he plays his way into the Conn Smythe situation, um, why shouldn't he be considered among the greats all time in the game? You're right. He's never cheated the game. Uh, And if he had, you're talking about a guy who could routinely score 40 goals in a season and at the end of his career uh, would put up monstrous numbers. He'll still have great numbers. He really will because he plays both ways and he's he's still a very talented offensive player. But when you start going into Messier land, you're talking about, you know, top seven, eight, nine players all time. And, and, And I think there are people, especially people who have played with And I would imagine people who played head-to-head against Bergeron on a regular basis who would tell you, yeah, that's probably where he belongs because it was a pain in the ass playing against that guy because every minute, every second he's on the ice, he is making you work and making you earn it. And at the same time, his offense is still elite. Uh, I I think the cool thing about Bergeron is he, he is probably the last guy who cares that he's underrated, right? Yeah. He's smooth and professional <laughs> and classy. He just wants to win. Like he's never, it, not for a second is any of this going to bother him. And, and in many ways, that's what makes him so great and so unique. Yeah, well, I just thought that the reason I brought up the Messier comment, I just thought that was so interesting to hear that from the greatest hockey player of all time, comparing him to Mark Messier. It's like, holy crap. I mean, maybe us even here locally have underrated what Bergeron's done. If Wayne Gretzky is comparing Bergeron to Mark Messier, that just tells you the respect level that he has for the player. Well, I also think there's something to be said that, you know, Gretzky really, he's a historian, but he's a student also of the modern game. And I think what you see a lot right now in the game, because scoring is way up, uh, I think you see, and it's not necessarily guys cheating the game, because younger players who come up, this is now just the way they play. Uh, they go for their points. They take risks. They're elite skaters. The game's much faster. So there's this idea, oh, I'm such a good skater, I can recover. But it doesn't work out that way in the NHL. That's why you see a lot of teams trading goals, uh, you know, And I think what he sees is that there is a successful player in the modern game who still plays the way that Gretzky respects and that Gretzky knows in the end is really the way you're going to win these win Stanley Cups. You may put a point to the regular season, but you're not going to win unless you play the way he plays. And I think Gretzky has profound respect for guys like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was a real interesting comment, I thought. And it's been an outstanding season for Bergeron. I'm I'm happy because I didn't want to see him go out the way things kind of ended last year where it didn't feel like they were going to have another chance at another cup. It felt like, oh, maybe St. Louis, that was going to be their last opportunity. But obviously, they got a good opportunity here. So Lindholm is already, you mentioned him, he's up to 28 points. His career high is 34, leads the league in plus minus, which isn't a surprise considering the team that he's playing for. But when they made the trade last year, everybody thought here, okay, this makes a lot of sense, right? You need another top tier defenseman to go along with McAvoy. Like Grizzlick is a good player, but more on the offensive end, diminutive in stature in some sense. Forbert really good in the defensive end. It did feel like, okay, this is a real nice move, but the slam dunk effect that it's had, especially at the beginning of the season when McAvoy was out, did you guys expect him to have this level of impact on the team? 
Not at all. And that's, that's what I meant by, you know, you have to have guys who come out and surprise if you're going to have a season that's successful. Uh, I think in many ways, there were people who thought that he would be, I don't want to say a depth defenseman, because I don't think that really uh, illustrates his effect on the team properly. But I don't think they saw the top level of shutdown that he could bring along with the idea that, I mean, he's a smooth skater. So if I think if you unleash him a little bit and Jim Montgomery, to some extent, has done that for everyone defensively, uh, that he can contribute offensively in a way that he has not in the past. Uh, he has to stay healthy. That's, that's a big part of this. Uh, but n- nobody really saw this level coming. And I think there was some thought that with the top pairing out, that uh, you know this was a team that was going to struggle. It was a team that was going to get scored on. Goaltending, I think we expect it to be good, not great. Um, and more of a timeshare, more of a true uh, 1A, 1B, and we'll figure it out as we go along. That has certainly not been the case either. But uh, this team has now you know, shocked us in many ways at the beginning. Lindholm is one of those guys. The question is, you know, everyone wants to add a depth defenseman at the deadline. I don't think Boston needs one. And I think a big reason is because they're healthy and because Lindholm is now taking his game to another level. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I, Jim Montgomery probably deserves a lot of the credit here. Lindholm himself deserves a lot of the credit here, but you're talking about, I think a, a team that uh, is stout defensively getting a little bit more offensively from Lindholm than they expected. So to me, I, I see this as a, as a team, as we hit the deadline area and we're now like 50 days away from that trade deadline. Probably depth forward would be more my concern with this team, and, you know, especially with the brusque out. Yeah, it's an interesting point because we've seen that Don Sweeney, the last two big, big moves rather that he's made at the deadline have hit. I mean, Lindholm's been phenomenal. Of course, Taylor Hall, who yeah. a guy that we're talking about pasta, a guy that won the MVP is on your third line. So that's a pretty nice luxury item to have where Taylor Hall's on your third line. So on Montgomery, because when they hired him, one of the things we heard is he's going to be better with the younger players, obviously had won a national title at Denver. And that was sort of one of the critiques of Bruce Cassidy. Maybe some of these guys weren't developing, although you could argue maybe the players weren't just that great. And I always thought that was an interesting thing with Montgomery because it's like, well, he's coming to the Bruins, like a very veteran laden team. It's not like there's a lot of young guys that he needs to develop. So what is it that's jumped out to you about Montgomery? Do you think maybe it's just the personality change? Obviously, the system is big, too. I think the system is definitely big. And I, I really have to say, I think personality change, uh, certainly, I think with a guy like DeBrusque, it helped. It, it, it changed the mood and uh, it changes individuals' moods. Or it feels like, hey, I have a fresh start. Uh, and I would say also, I think with older players, there's this feeling of, right, all right, something new, something different. There's a little bit of energy here. I think there are great coaches around the league that if you move them around at the right time uh, and you change the vibe in the locker room, you change the vibe of the players, things start to unfold. And you really do see that around the NHL right now. And I'm not a big like coaching carousel guy. Sometimes it's annoying and you roll your eyes and you're like, oh, wow, they're hiring the guy who was right there and they're hiring this ex, like, you know, and there's no creativity to it. But you look around the NHL right now and Montgomery is probably the front runner for coach of the year. He's in Boston. Now the guy who leaves Boston goes to Vegas uh, and Vegas right now looks like a team that can emerge from the West. And a lot of those players look like they have a lot of life, and a lot of jump and their defense is, is, you know, responded really well to that. Then you look at the guy who left Vegas and Pete DeBoer and he goes to Dallas 
And all of a sudden, Dallas no longer looks like a bubble team. Dallas looks like a team that could play against Vegas in the Western Conference Final. And sometimes it's about, I, I really do believe this in pro sports. I think there's a time when a change is just necessary for a change. And you need a different voice. People have been hearing the same thing, doing the same thing in practice. And you need to change. You need to mix it up a little bit. And I think with these teams, it's really worked. And the funny thing is, oddly enough, bonus leaves Dallas. He goes to the Jets. And look at the Jets. A team that everyone thought was going to be terrible is right now in the mix and going to make the playoffs. So it doesn't always work that way. Uh, but right now with those teams, just the idea of circulating new ideas into a locker room, uh, it's it's made things feel fresh and different. And I think probably the Boston Bruins, an older team, needed that. Well, and with Cassidy, too. I mean, the guy had a great resume here, right? He took this team to a Stanley Cup, and the guy got a new job. Like, he was unemployed for, like, two minutes, and then Vegas <laughs> yeah, was calling yeah. him. So it just shows you how good of a coach he was. And, I mean, I'll be honest. Like, last year when DeBrusque was asking for a trade, I'm like, this sounds ridiculous. Like, he's asking for a trade. Like, out of all players, he doesn't really have the resume to be able to do that. So... Most people were on Bruce Cassidy's side when he got fired, but clearly you're right. Don Sweeney made the right decision. They needed a new voice and clearly it's worked and it's not really an indictment on Cassidy. It's just, okay, maybe he, his time wore thin, like they needed a change and clearly it's worked for him in Las Vegas. So good for him as well. So Lamb, since you cover the league in general, I wanted to get your take on um, the Buffalo Sabres because they beat the Bruins uh, in overtime. I believe that was what? New Year's Eve. And yep. now I'm wondering, is this a team that we got to start worrying about because they're playing really well? I, I think you do have to worry about them. Uh, and I think that's one of the things about the division now is uh, there are no gimme games. You know, there's no like, hey, we can beat up on the bottom teams and we can move on. And the Sabres are certainly not that team anymore. Uh, even Detroit's a little bit better. Uh, although I think Detroit is a, a longer term build and Iserman, the Iser plan is, is not going to be rushed and he's going to take his time and get the people in place that he wants to get there. The Sabres are there offensively. We all know that uh, elite scoring team, fun team to watch up and down the ice, can skate skill, uh, I think they are a team that, that should worry everyone in the league and certainly worry the teams in the division. They're going to compete for a wild card. I honestly think in the end they're not going to make it. And I think the biggest thing for them right now is they don't have the goaltending. Um, they probably lack a little bit of defensive structure as well. Uh, but next year, they're a playoff team. They should be a playoff team. Next year, if they don't make it, it's a, to me, it's a massive disappointment, which I get it. Listen, I, I went to college in Buffalo. I have ties there, and I'm well aware of how long it has been since the Buffalo Sabres made the playoffs because it was my <laughs> first year at NBC. I got to go to Buffalo, do a playoff game, and I was like, oh, cool, I'm back in Buffalo. I guess I'll come here all the, all the time every year. And then I never went ever again because they never made the playoffs again. So uh, <laughs> it's been a long time, uh, but it has a Bills feeling to it. Doesn't it like it has yeah. that sort of like, hey, not only are they on the verge, but they're on the verge of being really good, really fun, dangerous. And this thing could last for a long time. And I got to tell you something, as someone who's lived in that town and knows people there and knows that listen, it's not the easiest place to live, certainly from what, November through almost May. Uh, it's gray. It's cold. I get it. You need people who want to be there. You need people who want to be there. And right now, I think that's what the Buffalo Sabres have. So, yeah, uh, I'd be worried. And I think they're going to be right in the mix. But they're also going to have games. They're going to go out. They're going to score six goals in a period. They're going to beat some teams like 9-5. And then the next night, they're going to lose 4 nothing. 
Like they are, they're still that team. Uh, but man, uh, they're fun to watch and they look like a team that playoffs next year. And then if they didn't make the playoffs the next seven years, uh, in many ways, that should be a disappointment. All right. And Lam, before I let you go, because I know you guys get the Leafs coming up tomorrow night on TNT, and I'm just looking through this in terms of the Eastern Conference. Who do you think are the top two to three teams in the East that the Bruins should be worried about in the postseason? We know the NHL playoffs. It's like nothing else. Or I should say the Stanley Cup playoff where anything can happen. A goalie gets hot, et cetera. We saw the 18-19 Lightning who set the record for wins. They lose in the first round. But just in terms of right now, obviously the Bruins look like the clear favorite. Who do you think is the biggest threat to them in the East? I'll say this. I think the Leafs are the biggest threat. But of course, the Leafs have to get past the first round, which the Leafs never do. If the (laughs) Leafs do get past the first round, though, the weight is lifted. And this is a team that now can play free, easy. And then all of a sudden, I'd worry a lot about the Maple Leafs. Uh, I also, I worry about them because they now play defense. They know what they're doing defensively. They're getting some goaltending. Listen, I don't know if they'll get that goaltending during the playoffs. Uh, we'll see if Matt Murray can be the guy, but I would worry about them. You always worry about Tampa Bay because they're the champs and they can turn it on. And then, uh, on the other side of things, it's the team that knocked the Boston Bruins out last year. And it's Carolina. It's mm-hmm. Brenda Moore is one of the great coaches in this game. It's a team with underrated stars, uh, not you know, it, not a lot of household names on that team. But now, a few more veteran guys. You have Pacioretty, you have Burns. Uh, the young goalie uh, has really stepped up in, in a way that nobody thought uh, Kajeko was going to. So, I, I don't know. I, I'd worry about them as well. But uh, to me, I think those are the teams. And unfortunately, because of the divisional lineup in the playoffs, I think you're going to see really the three best teams in the East all lined up in that one, two, three spot in the Atlantic division, which, you know, we used to see it a lot with Pittsburgh and Washington. And now we're going to see it here because, you know, one of the top three teams in the East is losing in the first round. And then you're going to have to play Boston against the winner of that, you know, Tampa Bay uh, Toronto series. So it, it kind of stinks because you want that to be the game that gets you into the Stanley cup final. And it's not going to be the case. But, man, let's cross our fingers. Leafs, Bruins, second round. Let's get this going. Yeah, let's and let's have Toronto and Tampa have like a long series that is very physical. Wear them down for the Bruins. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I guess that could be the one benefit of getting one of those two teams in the second round. That is Lamb McHugh, the NHL on TNT. Lamb, really enjoy all the stuff you guys do. Great job covering the league. And thanks so much for joining us, man. We really appreciate it. This was fun. Thanks for having me on. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Welcome back into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us again, it is Kyrie Thompson from WEI, the first in Foxborough podcast as the season is wrapped up. Kyrie, I thought there's nobody better to wrap up this season than with you. What's going on, man? Oh, man, I'm just kind of uh, coming to grips with it all. I mean, I went to Gillette for the last time on Monday for, for clean out day, which honestly, I had never done that before. It is depressing. 
know, being being <laughs> there, watching people cleaning out their lockers. And I mean, you, you get people who are, who are good sports about it, willing to talk. I mean, Jacoby Myers talked for a little bit. Uh, Dietrich Wise Jr. is there, uh, keeping everybody's spirits up. But it's tough. It's tough because some of these guys aren't going to see each other again uh, on the same team for a minute. Well, speaking of that, I thought some of the comments that Bill made yesterday were real interesting, right? So Bill was asked about, hey, last year you spent an unprecedented amount of money in free agency, wondering after the second year if you felt like it was the best bang for your buck. So Bill basically said, and I'm paraphrasing some of it, but I'll get to the direct quote. One year is a Polaroid snapshot, but actually there are multiple years involved. At some point, the reconciliation has to come. Our spending in 2020, our spending in 2021, and our spending in 2022, the of that was 27th in the league, okay? So if you do look at it, Bill has a point. I mean, 2022, 28th, 2021, 20th, 2020, 30th, 21st and 19th, 15th and 18th, now 17th, they spent a ton of money 4th. But it did feel like Kyrie almost, like, we heard Robert Kraft make comments last year about, hey, he wants to see some return on his investment. He spent all this money in free agency. But if you look at it through the course of history with Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick, he actually has been in the lower third in terms of spending, in terms of total cash. So did that feel like to you something that Bill just wanted to get off his chest because he felt like the perception was out there that he spent all this money? Yes. And you know what? I've seen some people suggest that maybe this is a shot at Bob Kraft, like, hey, you know, yeah, we spent all this money this one year, but most of the time we're 27th in the league or lower third in the league. And it's like, hey, we're, we're just not spending that much money because, uh, hey, owner guy over there is kind of cheap or what have you. But, but the, <laughs> the, the, the way that I looked at it, though, what was almost that this is this doesn't help your argument if, if you're trying to say, well, look, we're not mindless spendthrifts out there just, just choking away millions of dollars every single year. But you look at the reality of what they have spent that money on, which is the majority of it. I went on over the cap and checked this out. And I believe in, in 2022, they were spending about $97 million on their offense. And almost 70 million of that was going to their wide receivers and tight ends. And aside from Jacoby Myers, who has been worth the investment at those positions? None of them have. I'll go ahead and answer that for you. So, 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 I mean, that, that's, that's pretty glaring. And then when you look at the positions that they've been cheap at, like cornerback, they, I mean, look, they were not as bad as I expected them to be. I give them credit for, for playing up a little bit and and getting the most out of that talent. But then when they go up against the Jamar chases and the Stefan Diggs, they get exposed. So great. You go ahead and you you spend a lot of money in one place and, and the, return on the investment hasn't been good. I mean, it's been good in other places like Matthew Judon. That's at, that was absolutely worth the pay a hundred percent for that. But then you look at the position like, okay, well, we, we spent a lot in some areas, but not in others. So we're not super, uh, you know, uh, or prodigal. We're actually pretty cheap. And the areas that you went cheap in are also getting exposed. So there's really no way you win this argument if you're Bill Belichick to me. Yeah, the tight end thing is a complete disaster. Even if we thought, hey, maybe Janu takes a step forward in year two, it didn't happen. Hunter Henry's a fine player. He's a good player. He's not worthy of the money that he's making. And the Aguilar thing, whether that's on the coaching staff, whether that's on the player, it just never worked out here either. And you're spending all these mo- all this money on tight ends and receivers, and you don't have a legitimate number one. I mean, it's, it's really embarrassing. So that was Bill's comment. And I thought it was interesting that Kraft that they actually released a statement or sent an email, I should say, to the season ticket holders. And the thing that stuck out to me in this statement, because, I mean, you can read it. It's not super long if you want to go ahead and check the whole thing out. But the thing that stuck out to me, Kyrie, is 
In the weeks ahead, we will be making critical evaluations of all elements of our football operation as we strive to improve and return to the playoffs next year. Okay, so this is, we know exactly what's going on. We know that everybody is shitting on Patricia, Cam Accord, and it feels like, to me, this was sort of a sentiment from the ownership to the fan base saying, don't panic, we are going to make changes, and I would expect that means that Patricia is no longer calling plays next year, and maybe Cam Accord is given his walking papers. Heck, I would say, put Joe Judge there. Let Joe Judge be the special teams coach. Get him away from Mac in the offense. But I think that that signaled to the fan base that, hey, there are changes coming on the coaching staff. I mean, a thousand percent. You cannot look at what just happened on offense where you went from, you know, uh, like the, the – uh, 11th or whatever scoring offense in the league you're kind of in the top half of the league and then you drop down to 26th and, and you're and you're a bottom 10 team in terms of scoring and yards and all of that and I mean Mac Jones went from 11th in uh you know EPA you know and, and uh you know completion percentage over expected composite numbers and he went from 11th last year as a rookie to 29th this year oh oh I mean and look, the personnel is largely the same. So you tell me what changed. I mean, to me, it's pretty obvious. And so you you absolutely cannot go into next year with Matt Patricia calling your plays, designing your offense. I mean, that, that's actually one thing where I don't know who took on the leadership role in designing the offense. If it was Patricia, if it was Judge, because I keep on telling people, I don't know what Joe Judge does. I mean, they talk, about him, they talk about him being the quarterback's coach and, and whatever. But, I mean, you never see him really doing a whole lot of anything. He's just kind of chilling in the back. And so it's like maybe he you know, was part of the, the, the design issues and stuff. And maybe uh, he deserves some blame that they're shielding him from. I have no idea. But, look, I, I think, yes, as you said, get him as far away from Mac Jones as possible. That's an easy one. Now, of course, I don't think you can name him officially – the special teams coordinator, if you want oh, yeah. the New York Giants to keep on paying his salary. But with right. Patricia, you ain't got to worry about that at all. Because he, because I think the, the Lions are done paying him after this year. So you go ahead and do whatever you want to do with him. Keep him as your senior football advisor, what have you. But yeah, that, that ain't going to work. Get him away from the offensive side of the football. And to me, I would hope this also means, hey, look, Bill, you've been great. You've won a lot of championships, a lot of conference titles, what have you. But your way of doing things and, and us just kind of letting you uh, do it however way that you want, it's not working right now. So we're going to maybe have some input here in terms of we're going to have you hire a real offensive coach, whether that's Bill O'Brien or, or what have you. But it's got to it's got to be a real competent guy with experience. We are not going to accept another situation where it's like, oh, yeah, you know. They're really good coaches. They could coach anything. Let me go ahead and throw them on the offensive side of the football because, frankly, what happened was embarrassing, and I don't think they want to hear another year of headlines like this. Yeah, we can't have any more where it's you're either related to Bill, and by the way, Steve Belichick did a good job. This is not an indictment on him, but the way he hires right now is you're related to me or you owe me. Like The guys that are coming back to the organization are guys that Oh, Bill, right? I mean, that's kind of where we're at right now in terms of the hiring process. And it was, I'm sure you were infuriated by this too, Kyrie, like seeing Mac Jones nine for nine on play action in the week, or, or I should say the season finale when they didn't do that all year. He's third to last and drop back percentage we were in terms of play on, action. 
all year long. And some people are like, yeah, well, Mac Jones doesn't like turning his back to the defense, or maybe he doesn't want under center play action. I don't know. He looked pretty good at it to me. So he literally said it. He literally said he likes play action. He likes RPOs. And he was eight for eight in the first half. He had one play action attempt in the second half. It's kind of like a microcosm of the season. Like, oh, hey, we found something that works. Let's not use it anymore. But I (laughs) did want to ask you about Mac here because Bill was asked, like, is Mac the starter next year? And he said he has the ability to play quarterback in the league. We have we have to all work together to try to find the best way as a football team, which obviously the quarterback is an important position to be more productive than we were this year. So that's incumbent upon all of us. We'll all work together on that. Again, we'll look for better results. So that comment to me, it doesn't really sound like a ringing endorsement of Mac. What it sounds like to me is he's saying, I believe Mac can be a quarterback, a starting quarterback in this league, but he's got to play better. He's got to play better than he was this year. And that's sort of taken the coaching element out of what happened. But what did you make when you heard Bill say that yesterday? See, I think people jumped immediately to, oh, Bill Belichick didn't endorse Mac Jones as the starter. I mean, he hasn't done that all year. So why start now if you're Bill Belichick, right? (laughs) But I feel like the way that I read it was a bit differently, where you're kind of to your point. It's like, look, Mac Jones can clearly play in the NFL. We've seen that he can play in the NFL. We've seen that he can start, okay, that, that, he, that he is a good player. And I feel like that's the part that we need to think about there. Is that, that's what Bill Belichick said. Because you look at what was said about Matt Patricia, Joe Judge and such, it was, well, we're evaluating everything. I mean, he didn't sit up there and say, oh, yeah, is Mac, is Mac Jones your, your starting quarterback going into 2023? Oh, we're evaluating everything. I mean, he did say, like, look, we have, we need to look at the offense and why it needs to produce better. And obviously, quarterback is a big position. But I feel like, to me, it was more like, look, Mac Jones is not the biggest problem on my offense. Clearly, he needs to play better. Everybody needs to play better. And we need to figure out why they didn't play up to the level that they did last year. When, again, it was largely the same personnel. And I think one part of the answer is really simple. It's the offensive coaching. But the other part is, look, to me, it's a talent issue as well, because Mac Jones has shown at various points that he could kind of play through the schematic part of it, right? Where, look, I think he did a great job against the Buffalo Bills, actually. I I know through three interceptions, but he did a good job of taking what the Bills were giving him and, and showing growth over the last couple of times that he's played this team. Because they've really tried to make him play to his weaknesses. And I think he did a better job of showing that, hey, those aren't so weak anymore. I can do that. There are reasons to think that Mac Jones grew. But again, I think that when you talk about quarterbacks and you want to see guys elevate teams, that's that's always the, the buzz phrase everybody says. I want a quarterback who can elevate a team. When you're really young, you need your team to kind of elevate you. At a certain extent, that's why we talk about, oh, yeah, we got to go get Trevor Lawrence some weapons, but we need to go get Justin Fields some weapons or Mac Jones some weapons, because you're not trying to ask a second or third year quarterback to elevate a bunch of bums. You need to support them. And then once you support them, you can see what they can actually do. They didn't support Mac Jones this year to the level of even a Zach Wilson. Like, for example, you put Mac Jones in New York. I think that team makes the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, you have Garrett Wilson at receiver, right? I mean, it's it's a really fair point because of the fact that, all right, well, he wasn't supported on two levels. A, the coaching. The coaching was atrocious from an offensive perspective. And B, the personnel. Like, he didn't have one of the two that you needed. You think about, and I always come back to the Jimmy Garoppolo example. Look at San Francisco. He has the coaching, a great offensive play caller, 
And he always had the personnel. Look at Brock Purdy right now. (laughs) This guy's Mr. Irrelevant. And look what he's able to do with good coaching and good players. So it's a really fair point. All right. So you're down for some grading here on the season. Okay. All right. Let's start with Mac because we're just talking about him. So you look at the numbers, 21st in passing yards per game, 18th in completion percentage, 26th in passer rating, 25th in yards per attempt. And I've outlined on multiple occasions, he was the worst rated passer from pro football focus against the Blitz. Some of that has to do with the coaching staff. I'm not excluding that whatsoever. But when I look at Mac, I would go with slightly below average this year. I would say he's a C minus where I don't think that you won any games this season because of Mac. But I can't put him in the D level, Kyrie, because even though the numbers are really bad, we have to acknowledge the coaching staff. We have to acknowledge the players as well. So I would say Mac this year is slightly below average. I would give him a C minus on the season. I would give him C minus as well. And I think that obviously you mentioned they didn't win any games because of Mac Jones. I don't know that they straight up lost games because of Mac Jones either. You could point to, I mean, maybe the Baltimore game where he threw three interceptions, but like the Bills game, eh, you didn't lose that because of Mac Jones. Not not in, not in my eyes. Yeah, I mean, special were, teams. Yeah, you lost you that because of special teams. <laughs> yeah, you were in it because of Mac Jones, uh, you know, leading those touchdown drives. So, I mean, I think it's hard to accurately say Mac Jones was, was horrible because I don't really think that's true one way or another. I mean, the numbers are bad, but everybody was bad on this offense because the system was bad. The coaching was bad. The execution is bad. And I mean, what do you want Mac Jones to do for a couple of those situations where he's trying to throw a screen and like nobody's looking or guys bump into each other on the route and they're down on the ground. He's like, you were supposed to be my first read. Uh, Now I'm screwed. So there's certain there's so many things that were outside of Mac Jones's control this year where I just don't think that you can realistically point to him and say you were the problem. But there were plenty of things that were in Mac Jones's control, and I think his emotions were probably part of that, where he could have done a better job on, on just the things that, that were personally within his control. But I think he showed enough this year to say that he's not some abjectly terrible quarterback. He's just not a guy that is going to put on a Superman cape. And I know a lot of people want that. It's great when you have that guy, but even Superman himself was not going to save this offense. Well, and that's a great point, too, on like, I was okay with an outburst or two, but when they kept happening, it's like, man, we all know what the problem is, but you you got to stop doing this because that position is also a position of leadership. You can't keep having these outbursts towards the coaching staff. Like, that has to stop. You're showing them up on the field. I thought it got to the point where I was empathetic at times, but it's like, dude, we get it. Like, you're mad. Everybody's bad. Like, you got to calm down. You got to be the guy that is in charge of this team, Right. Okay, so the running backs, I can't really give anybody a grade besides Ramondre because Damian Harris didn't play that much. I'm going with an A. I know you can look at the fumble against Cincinnati. Maybe you dock him A- minus because you're, you had a chance to win that game, but you just look at it. I mean, yards after contact, he was third per attempt, 3.81. 30, eight, uh, 30 10-plus yard runs, that was eighth. 69 receptions, Kyrie, that was fourth. And he didn't have Damian Harris for most of the season to spell him. So Ramondre Stevenson, if you're looking for something from the offense to say, Oh, yeah, we have a stud. You have one of the premier running backs in the NFL. So I don't know how you don't go with anything. At worst, you give him an A minus, but I got to give him an A. Yeah, I'll be a stickler and give him the A minus because of the, the ball security issues. I mean, look, you're, you might not even be talking about uh, the, the season would probably still be going on right now if the Patriots had just won that game because they would have True. gotten the nine wins. 
and, and there you go. And then obviously he was part of, unfortunately, throwing away the Vegas game. Uh, so, so, I mean, look, that, that's a problem. But I think that in terms of his growth, I mean, absolutely. He, he became everything we wanted him to become. He is a true third down running back. He creates stuff out of nothing all the time. And, and look, I mean, he, he soldiered his way through the season. He was, he was just dog tired by the end of this year. They were riding him yeah. so hard. I mean, you could, you could see it, but he was out there giving it everything he had. I have a lot of respect for him and what he did. And I have a lot of respect for just his ability to get through some of the struggles that he had even in, in that first year. And everybody knew he could play, and they were just trying to get the best out of him. Now look at where he was when he was just getting dog cussed by Ivan Fears and Josh McDaniels, just seemingly every minute he was doing something wrong. But it's because they knew how good he could be. And here he is as one of the better running backs in the NFL. It's been excellent to watch. Yeah, I mean, it's probably fair. I probably want to redo my grade and give him the A minus because that was a huge fumble. I mean, that was that was a costly fumble. So you're probably right on that. I probably lean towards the A minus now that you you've convinced me, Kyrie. I'm going A minus yeah, over there. Yeah, but I, it's like that. That's it's not even to say uh, that's a huge, huge, huge knock on him because all the good really outweighs weighed the bad. But just yeah, there were a couple of mistakes that I hope that he learns from going into next year. All right, so I'll go with the offensive line like as a unit, right? So if you look at ESPN's pass block win rate, they were 17th. Pro Football Focus had them at 12th. Run block, they were 20th via PFF. They were 32nd via ESPN. And we saw that. I mean, that hence the numbers were yards after contact for Andre Stevenson, right? Now, if you look at Trent Brown, 13 total flags. Obviously, he got some decline. That was tied for the third most. And win was 77th out of 87 tackles via pro football focus grading. I'm not saying this is the perfect thing, but it kind of does make sense that you would have him 77th based on the way that he played when he was actually yeah. out there. Now, on when you was the fourth-ranked guard, he had another good season. Strange, not great, 65th. Andrews, 26th-ranked center, all pro football focus. But just some of the games stick out to me, like the Jets game where Mack was under pressure 38.6% of his dropbacks. <laughs> there were games where... Even if the numbers look better than the product we watched, there were games where it was really bad for the Patriots this season. I would give that group a D, and the reason I don't go lower than that is just because on when you did have a really good season. So and Ferentz played well when he was in there. So on when you kind of picks them up, right? Yeah, I think that it's probably more C minus for me. Um, I think though that you could you could argue that some of that was more against you're more dominating some some bad teams or, or teams that were missing some of their better players. Um, See, so you, you could go with that. I think the offensive line was not necessarily as horrible as it looked a lot of the time, but you also have to look at the fact that, okay, maybe the, the, the protection was generally like, okay, but the run blocking was, was much rougher than you'd want it yeah. to be, especially towards the end of the year. And, and that really hampered the Patriots. The fact that they could not run the football as effectively as they needed it to. And I mean, you talk about Isaiah Wynn, right? Well, Isaiah Wynn and Marcus Cannon at one point were like, I remember checking uh, just all tackles that had played. And like Isaiah Wynn was like the 93rd tackle or something like that. Marcus Cannon was like the 98th in terms of pro football focus grade, which I tend to, I tend to go with pro football focus grades more for offensive linemen than most other positions. So, I mean, I think it's a relatively accurate gauge. So, I mean, bad, very, very bad. You've got to up, you've got to upgrade that position 
in the draft and free agency, whatever you got to do. I think Connor McDermott actually played fairly solidly. They, they got him back after, after losing him a couple <laughs> of years ago. Uh, but I think he, he did a solid job in relief and, and maybe he's going to be back and have an opportunity to compete for, for a job next year. I, I think I'd be open to that, but Trent Brown was a tough year for him. Sick hurt, you know, what have you. I mean, it just you just wasn't fully healthy, wasn't fully engaged. You talk about the fact that he got moved to left tackle when he was expecting to be a right tackle. He's getting paid like a right tackle. And I heard that there were some rumblings that he wasn't really all that cool with, with that part, that if he knew he was going to be a left tackle, he had to ask for more money. But, I mean, that's what it is, right? Patriots want to save bucks wherever they can. Um, he was very good at points, particularly for a guy who was getting left on an island a lot. But, man, as the year went on, he, he just wasn't holding up his end. I think the interior of the offensive line generally was pretty solid. I mean, David Andrews, when he was healthy, was fine. Barrett's was probably better than I thought he was going to be. There were times where he was getting abused. But, I mean, look, most guys are going to get killed by Quinn and Williams. It is what it is. Cole yeah. Strange, I mean, he started every game. I mean, it wasn't always pretty. And there were definitely some learning moments, which I think were made – Worse by the fact that Trent Brown wasn't playing his best football. But I think all things considered, you probably feel decent about Cole Strange's first year at, at left guard. So I think you upgrade the tackle spots and you're probably feeling a lot better about this. So, yeah, I, I, I definitely don't think it's a failing grade, but you definitely it has to be better for sure. All right. And then if we put the pass catchers together, the tight ends and the receivers, like I don't want to dismiss what. Jacoby Myers did this year because he was phenomenal. 67 receptions. His yards per game were up. His touchdowns were up by four. Yards per reception, 10.4 up to 12. The rating when targeted, this is a big one that stuck out to me, went from 81 to 116. That was 10th among players that were targeted at least 60 times. But then you think about the rest of the groups. We mentioned the tight ends earlier. Just, I mean, no production there. I mean, you look at it. John U. Smith had 27 receptions, 38th of 43 qualified tight ends. I'm surprised it, there was that many. Yeah, and it's it's not like he was cheap either. I mean, the guy's making a lot of money. You had five tight ends had more receptions than Hunter Henry and John o. Smith combined. Kelsey, Hawkinson, Ingram, Andrews, and Higby. And you look at the rest of the receiving group, like I, I don't know how many times I talked about getting Bourne more involved, but we do have to acknowledge that the guy had a bad training camp, right? I mean, that's not something that was made up. I wish they involved him more. He did not have the same season. A lot of that's he wasn't out there as much. Tyquan Thornton, I thought he was okay in his rookie campaign. Devontae Parker was eh, a lot of interceptions when he was targeted at a big catch the other day. But all in all, if I was going to rate this group of weapons, and Aguilar was not good this season, besides that catch he made against Pittsburgh, which was incredible. That's like the big catch that he made. And some of it I know is usage and all that, but I would give them a D. I, I just think that this group didn't help the young quarterback. Nope, they absolutely did not. I mean, you could say D might even be a bit charitable, but I think it's probably fine. Um, because, because of Jacoby Myers and, and Jacoby Myers probably going to get to a thousand yards. If he, if he played the entire season, he was having that kind of year. He's clearly a good player. He's going to be one of the most, if not the most sought after free agent receiver on the market. So if the Patriots want to keep him, they better start putting the money out there. Now do not let him get to the market. Cause then he's going to start seeing offers of, you know, $10 million, $12 million a year. He's going to be like, I'm going to go someplace else potentially because he's he's earned that. He has earned that. But I think in terms of the rest of the unit, I mean, it was a lot of it was contingent on health. 
And so a lot of it was contingent on the fact that the offense was bad. And I mean, that the play design was bad and all kinds of other things. But I mean, look, I had, I had some different hopes for this unit because I thought that if you had a bunch of solid receivers, and particularly Devontae Parker being involved in this, that maybe you could slide some guys around and use them a little bit more creatively. But the problem is you didn't use them more creatively. You didn't use Nelson Aguilar more creatively. You didn't use Kendrick Bourne basically at all. And so essentially you, you went ahead and you got Devontae Parker to make things easier on other people. And then you had him run the same two or three routes the entire season. And then you didn't do anything else with the other guys that were down the ballot. So, I mean, it, a lot of it is, is again, to me, coaching related, but you had, you had drops in there. You had guys running the wrong routes. You had guys running into each other guys being in the same areas. I mean, it, it was, it was generally just a bad year all around and you got to have more for your young quarterback, as you mentioned. And to me, I think if you're talking about offensive line being the number one need, which I think would probably be the number one need they do need to address in free agency, specifically the tackle spot, getting a, a real number one wide receiver come hell or high water. That's easily the next thing on the list. That's got to be it. I mean, look across the league. How many times do we have to point this out? All these quarterbacks that are not, to your point earlier, superhuman, right? The superhero type quarterbacks. Look at what happens when you get these guys weapons. Tyreek Hill, A.J. Brown. They turn these quarterbacks' careers around. So I don't know what... I mean, what... Josh Allen, too. I mean, yes, you had Diggs. Stephon Diggs. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, Kirk Cousins. He's got, he had Diggs and then he had Jefferson. And the guys had like a really good career because of the weapons he's had around them. I just... I hope that Bill changed his opinion on this. Maybe he thought one of those guys would be that guy, but just get... And here's yeah. the thing. He had Gronk for all these years, Kyrie. Gronk's basically the same thing, except he plays tight end. Every mm -hmm. defensive coordinator had to game plan for Gronk. Now, the one thing that he benefited from with Gronk is he didn't have to pay him like a receiver, right? Yes. So it's yes. like, you could argue, like, if you look at that, I would say, like, last decade when Gronk was in his prime and you had... Antonio Brown and Julio Jones, like those are probably the two best weapons outside of Gronk. You could make an argument that Gronk was the best guy and the cap hit compared to Julio was significantly less just yeah. because you got away with. Remember, who was it? Jimmy Graham tried to appeal yeah. that he was so like Belichick got away with that. So you you have to realize that that's the same thing as having a number. In fact, it may be better than having a number one receiver, but you're not going to find tight ends like that. Like, I mean, how, Travis, Travis Kelsey over in Kansas City. Right. But so, I how, mean, how many are there? How yeah, many I are mean, there? Like, and that's why I mean, you go back to these tight end signings like they weren't going to be Gronk. Like how many guys are really that impactful at that position right now? Kelsey, Mark Andrews. I mean, Kittle, Kittle, yeah, George Kittle. But I mean, you think about receivers, we could name like 10 or 15, right? So like, I just hope that they go after a premier weapon because man, that would really get a better gauge of your quarterback. All right, we'll just do the defense in general because I felt like to your point about the corners, you're spot on. Like when you played good receivers, they ate you up. I mean, Diggs last week, seven for 104 in the touchdown, the prior game, seven for 92, Jefferson, nine for 139. Hill the first week, eight for 94. And look, Jack Jones had a good rookie season. I mean, some of the numbers on him are really good, but the problem is he got suspended at the end of the season, which obviously wasn't good when he was rehabbing. I thought Jonathan Jones had a really good season. The safeties, Duggar was outstanding. And you look at Duggar, he, this past season, second in pressures among safeties. So that was good. McCourty's numbers actually looked better than maybe actually the raw product this year when you actually saw him on the field. The edge guys were great. I mean, Uche... 
in win rate. He's six in the NFL, 24.1% among edge players. We know what Judon did this year. And even if you say, okay, final two games, he didn't have a sack. He was still tied for fourth in the NFL in sacks. Wise had a good season. The one thing I would say about the D-line, Kyrie, is the Pats were 31st in stuff rate, 13% football outsiders metric. So they weren't really great in that interior against the run. The linebackers... You had a good season from Bentley, I would say, at least a lot better than I expected. And remember, you were playing three safeties a lot, so you kind of got to group the line. And Tavai wasn't bad, like after, like I didn't think yeah. that guy was going to be, he wasn't bad. I mean, he was passable. So all in all, he got, with the he D- got better. He got better yeah. all year. And, and I think you got to give him props for that because I wasn't a huge fan of the idea that that they really liked him that much and they wanted to start him. But I mean, look, he, he did a good job. You got to give it to him. Yeah, so the defense, Kyrie, I would go B plus because all the numbers tell you that this group was elite. Here's the problem I have. You didn't beat a good quarterback. You lost to Josh Allen twice. You lost to Lamar. You lost to Tua. You lost to Kirk Cousins. You lost to Justin Fields. You beat Zach Wilson twice, right? I mean, these are the guys you beat. You didn't. Re- you beat Sam Ellinger. So that's what's having me not put them up to an A is just because this group was great. The numbers were great, but they never had that signature win over a good quarterback. They lost to Joe Burrow. They never beat that good quarterback. And I know a lot of that has to do with the offense and maybe I'm unfair, but every once in a while, your great defense has to beat a great quarterback when your offense doesn't have it going. And we didn't see that from this team. And I mean, look, it's because they, they are a good defense. I mean, I think we we kind of learned from this movie last year where they were dominating teams and then they came up against better ones and then they started to tail off in their production. But look, we, we knew coming into this that they didn't upgrade the defense talent-wise all that much. As a matter of fact, they kind of willfully went into – uh, you know, some some areas with holes like cornerback and linebacker, where you could say they they got worse uh, potentially from from last year to this year in term in terms of talent and kind of what you were projecting from them uh, coming into the year. But I think that when you look at what they ended up doing this year, I probably feel better about their performance this year than I did about last year. I think they were more competitive. I mean, obviously, look, the, the Bills beat them with their hand tied behind their back in Gillette Stadium a couple of weeks ago. But I think they did a much better job against them this time around, even though you get beat in the end because, I mean, Josh Allen just chucks one to Stephon Diggs and rolls out and hits John Brown. But but again, you look, 14 of those points came from kick return touchdowns. So that's 21 points allowed. If your yeah. offense is anything like what you're supposed to, what you want to be there, then – you should be able to stay competitive in that game. And I think that, again, they gave up 22 first half points against the Bengals. And then people say, oh, the Bengals took their foot off the gas. They were still throwing the ball. I mean, they, they were still trying to win. They were trying to score points. And I mean, there, there were parts where they arguably should have scored more points. But, but again, they held that defense to zero points in the second half. I feel like last year that would not have happened. They would have gotten their doors completely blown off. I think that they showed they were more resilient that they had guys playing better together as a unit than they did a year ago, at least in my opinion. But again, as you mentioned, who were they beating? Mitchell Trubisky, you know, Sam Ellinger, Zach Wilson twice, Jacoby Brissett. They don't have those, those elite quarterbacks on, on their, on their docket, on their infinity stone, you know, the infinity gauntlet, they ain't got that. And, And I mean, you look at, again, the quarterbacks that they lost to not just the elite ones, but the guys that could move, they lost to a three and fourteen Bears, a, a team that ended up going three and fourteen. Number one pick, they, 
because they couldn't stop that guy from just running around all over them. So, I mean, again, it's the same old story. It's the same story as it was last year. And so to me, again, you got to find a way to upgrade the talent on the outside of that defense. Matthew Judon's very good. You want another year of a healthy Christian Barmore, but to me, you got to get another impact player on the interior as well. So it's not just Christian Barmore pushing the pocket because you're not really getting pass rush from any of those other guys. And then it was great to see Josh Uche start to break out. Anthony Jennings, I thought had a solid year after really not seeing a whole lot of him uh, for the last couple of seasons. But, but again, on the outside at the premium positions, you need more. Kyle Duggar's awesome. I love the guy. I predicted before the season that he might end up this season being the Patriots' best overall player, and he made a case for it by the end. But that while that's great, you don't want him outside covering Stefan Diggs. So you got to find somebody that you can trust to go ahead and do that because until you do, until you find guys that can straight up lock down or, or really just be competitive on every single snap, not having Miles Bryant, chasing Isaiah McKenzie all over the field or John Brown all over the field because he can't do it. Like, I I really like Miles Bryant, but he can't do that stuff. You're going to still struggle against the speed and athleticism and playmaking that are in your your division right now. All right, Kyrie, and before I let you go, one newsworthy item, if you will. Gerard Mayo, the Browns have already requested to interview him, it feels like. And I know that we're looking at Flores is up for that job as well, or at least they put in a request to interview him for that gig as well. It just feels like with the contractual standpoint where he's done, I believe the contract's up, Kyrie, correct me if I'm wrong on that. It feels like Gerard Mayo is going to either get a gig as a defensive coordinator where he has that title or maybe even a stealth candidate to get a head coaching vacancy. I don't see him back with the Patriots in 2023. Do you? Nope. I think he's gone because I think Again, he's not going to, at this point, I wouldn't think that he's going to willingly come back for some linebackers coach slash play caller role or, or what have you. This guy's ready to be a defensive coordinator. He's ready to do the whole thing himself. He's been ready to do the whole thing himself. And he's not going to want to sit there and, and wait for his turn to finally be given the reins, it, which probably isn't going to happen because what is Steve Belichick going to get snapped up by another team? He's probably just going to stay with the Patriots as long as Bill is here. So, I mean, it's time for him to, in, in my eyes, go ahead, spread his wings and fly. I mean, the guy's going to get head coaching interviews probably as well. So the, to, to me, I think he's gone. I think it's also kind of likely that Nick Cayley is gone as well, because once you get passed over for Matt Patricia to run the offense and your contract is up as well, you probably want to go do something else and go work for somebody else too. Oh man, I was so invested in the Cayley thing. Like before last year, I was comparing him like, hey, look at all these tight ends coach that became play callers. Make Nick Cayley the guy and it looks like it's never going to happen here. Speaking of the Steve Belichick thing though, how funny would that be if like D'Amico Ryans is probably going to get a gig, right? So if he gets a head coaching job and Steve's like, hey dad, uh, your friend uh, Mike Shanahan, his kid Kyle called me. They need a DC. <laughs> <laughs> he just leaves. He leaves Bill. How bad would that? How funny would that be though? That would be pretty cool. That, <laughs> I, wouldn't, would, I wouldn't hate on Steve for that. That would honestly be hilarious. And I mean, look, if you if you look at it, whether it's just even if he's just doing play calling and Gerard Mayo does most of the game planning, I don't really know how their arrangement works. But I mean, Steve Belichick hasn't been that bad in this job. I mean, yeah, you might have a job good. because of nepotism, but I mean, he's still doing a good job. So, I mean, I, if somebody offered him a job and, and he took it, 
I, I don't necessarily think that that would just be like, oh, it's just because you're because you're Belichick's kid. I mean, it might be part of it, but I mean, I think he's legitimately done fine. And then the thing is, though, if that were to happen, well, then you could just slide the other kid into the play calling role and have <laughs> fun with that. Or or you go ahead and just throw Matt Patricia over there like, hey, you want to be my senior football advisor and run my defense too? go ahead. So it's like he's got options if they want to do that. He certainly does. All right, that is Kyrie Thompson from WEI, the first in Foxborough podcast. Kyrie, thanks so much for coming on throughout the year, man. We really enjoyed it, really appreciate it, and hopefully we'll talk again soon, hopefully before the draft, because I know you're big into the draft, so we'll have to break that down with the Patriots having pretty good pick, 14th overall. Last time they were in that area, they took Mac Jones, so we'll see what they do this year. Kyrie, thanks so much for the time, man. Yes, sir. Anytime. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. All right, great stuff from Lam McHugh and Kyrie Thompson. Great chatting some bees and some pats as their season came to an end. Let's get to a couple of your voicemails. Number 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Hey, Brian. Uh, this is Zach from Rochester again. Look, I, I agree Mac has been bad. He's been overthrowing guys. He's making bad decisions. But I think you got to stick with him. His mechanics have kind of gone out the tube this <laughs> this year. His confidence looks destroyed. But I think those things are fixable if you can address them relatively quickly here. If Mac is really not the guy, you can answer that next year and go after one of the big guys in the draft. Or you could even take a swing at a vet, although I'll admit that has not worked out so well for some of the teams out there that have done that recently. Look, QB development is not a straight line. I don't know how many guys we saw this year that made the playoffs at the beginning of the year. We saw, saw them as temporary solutions and their own teams are trying to get rid of them. Think of Geno, Tua, Daniel Jones, even Hertz and Jimmy G, and Jared Stinking Goff almost made the playoffs this year. Look, this year the defense was very good. It was probably the best part of the team. But I honestly think they're rebuilding. They've made some great progress, and I think the core is young. They couldn't hang with Buffalo last year, and this year they have shown the ability to keep the games within reach it was the offense that couldn't keep up. And look, there's reason for optimism. The Pats are fourth in cap space this offseason, and they have a top 15 pick. Get some O-line help, take some wide receiver flyers, and keep investing in that elite defense, and you just might have something here. They will be better next year. I will bet you on that. Let's stop expecting immediate and constant success because of the six Super Bowls and trust the process a little. All right, a couple of things to that. The first thing I would say is, I don't believe Mac is ever going to be in that elite category. I made that abundantly clear after the game on Sunday. So that's just where I stand on Mac, the player. But to answer your question, I do believe Mac's going to be back next year. I don't think there is an avenue right now for the Patriots with the 14th overall selection to improve the position. 
Now, I don't believe Brady's coming back. I don't know why he would based on the weaponry that the Patriots have. There's not like a lot of free agent quarterbacks out there. I would not want any part of Derek Carr whatsoever. That guy is a loser. I don't want him. (laughs) You're not getting into the Aaron Rodgers market, right? So I do believe Mac's going to get another year. And I do think that Mac's going to be better next year as long as they have a new offensive coordinator, which I think is going to be the case. But that doesn't make me feel optimistic about Mac long term. Like, I don't think Mac is going to be the quarterback for the next decade or so. Next year, sure, give him an opportunity. And look, when these guys get improved coaching, look what happened to Tua. Look at Jalen Hurts last season. You make good points. Like, we see a lot of guys take the step in year two, but some, in the case of Tua, he took it in year three. So Mac could definitely be better next year. If he's not better next year, then you have a massive problem and you're looking in the middle of the season and say, hey, maybe we should give the zappy guy an opportunity. So sure, he's going to be a little bit better next year. I would certainly agree with you on that, but I don't think we're going to be looking at him and say, holy shit, this is the next Tom Brady, or this is the next franchise quarterback, or this is a guy that we feel comfortable with going against Josh Allen for the foreseeable future. I don't think we'll ever get to that spot with Mac. Can he win if he has got a good team around him? Sure. He can be like Jimmy Garoppolo. He can be like Kirk Cousins, but getting into that upper echelon territory, never going to happen. And I do worry about the roster construction that we've seen over the past couple of years, because it quite frankly, hasn't been great. So if you want a guy that is not a super talented quarterback to make a run, your roster is going to be really freaking good. Like what Purdy has in San Francisco right now. The reality is the Patriots just aren't there. All right. Who's up next? Hey, Brian, uh, love the show, and uh, this is Mason in Queechy, Vermont. My God, this team was, the Patriots team was so bad. Um, I think one underrated thing is just how bad the special teams was, and I don't even know if it's the coordinator, but just the kicking game where every punt goes 30 yards uh, and every kickoff gets returned, like, it's ridiculous how bad that is. And it makes such a difference when your quarterback and offense is challenged to have to go an extra 10 or 20 yards on every drive. Like, you you go three and out and you punt it. If you get it back, you've now lost 10 or 20 yards because the other guy punting is so much better than the punter that we have. It's just exhausting to watch. I can't believe. I, I, I know the first guy uh, had a back injury or whatnot, but Alardi just, he just cannot get anything done in the punting game. And it's a small part, but I cannot believe it's not worth one win over the course of the season to have to have but have long fields all the time and to give short fields to your opponents. That's it. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Well, a couple of interesting things there. So first of all, we addressed this after the game the other day. The special teams unit was a complete disaster. Cam Accord should not be the special teams coordinator of this team anymore. This isn't a one-year thing. This is a two-year thing. Unfortunately, Bailey was hurt. He's dealing with this whole grievance right now. Polarity was absolutely atrocious, okay? The kickoffs the other day, that was embarrassing, too, from a Patriots perspective. And we chatted with Kyrie about this as well. But the one thing I'll say is this. like The offense, actually, if you think about it, They ended up this season with the best field position in the NFL because the defense was so good, putting them in good positions. They couldn't capitalize. But the special teams unit in general, 
This is something that we used to say the Patriots are always great in special teams. They turned out to be one of the worst units in the NFL this season. It's inarguable. They were horrible. It really cost you that game against Buffalo. The special teams unit was just a disaster. You had a game a couple of weeks ago where you're running into the punter. That shit used to never happen with this Patriots organization. It's something they have got to clean up. Like if you're not a super uber talented team, if you're not the Chiefs, if you're not the San Francisco 49ers, if you're not the Bengals, you can't have your special teams unit be that bad, right? Your special teams cannot be a detriment if you are from a talent perspective, middle of the road. That's what the Patriots are. Now, offensively, they're a lower third in the NFL, but if you take the offense combining with the defense, they're somewhere in the middle because they do have a lot of talent on the defensive side. So if that's the case and your quarterback's not going to put you over the top, your special teams cannot be something that significantly hurts you in multiple games this season. Unfortunately for the Patriots, it clearly did. All right, great stuff. If you want to leave a voicemail, that number is 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. All right, I did want to get to some Celtics because they beat the Bulls on Monday, 107-99. Levine was going nuts in the fourth quarter. I had enough of that guy, 15. He's not in a great season, and I know he hasn't been the same guy since the injury, but he was really good, six of nine in that fourth quarter, but it got a little too close to comfort. I did love the play at the end of the game, which I thought was kind of funny. So Tatum ends up finding Al Horford for that open three, which basically won the game for the Celtics. And if you look on the other side, who the coach was, it was Billy Donovan, who was Al Horford's coach at the collegiate level. When Al Horford and company won back-to-back national champions, we haven't had back-to-back national champions in college basketball since that Florida team. Now we just had back-to-back national championships in college football last night. I mean, what a joke of a game that was. I mean, I was looking forward to, hey, after the Celtics game, I'll dial in for the second half. That game sucked. I mean, what an embarrassment. And really what it looks bad for is Michigan. How did you get, how did you lose to that TCU team? That is flat out embarrassing for Harbaugh and company. But anyway, I got sidetracked there. I slightly digress. But just getting back to it. So Billy Donovan coaches Al Horford at Florida. At the end of the game, Billy Donovan calls for a double team on Tatum. Tatum, of course, sees it coming. The guy's literally coming from the same side. Like, terrible defense, terrible idea by Billy Donovan to bring the double. Like, you made the read incredibly easy for Tatum. And all Al Horford has to do, who's been a great three-point shooter for the past couple of years, he has to knock down a three, and he does, and you win the game. But I thought it was kind of funny that Billy Donovan decided, the guy that won him two national championships, let's uh, get off that guy, double team Tatum, and Tatum ends up with a perfect pass to Al Horford. Al Horford, easy three. The C's win the game. Now, I will say this about Tatum, too. He's had a couple of big assist games lately. So he had 10 against Dallas. Remember the triple-double we talked about with Michael Pina? And he had seven last night. He's up to 5.4 assists per game this month. And I think he's getting better as a passer. I think the recognition for Tatum is getting better, right? Where he's recognizing when the double is coming. He knows where the help is coming from. So I think he's been much better as a play creator, if you will, this year, even though in totality, the assist numbers are down. But I will say this about Tatum. What's interesting to me is Tatum got over the four assists per game threshold in year four of his career. It took Durant until year six. And if you're looking at it and saying, well, uh, Brian, that's just because the numbers were going up in terms of the scoring in general. That's actually not true. Tatum's assist percentage jumped over 20% that year. It took Durant until year six to get there. Kawhi Leonard, he didn't get until four assists per game until year nine of his career, where his first year with the Clippers, and that's when it got over 20% in terms of the assist percentage as well. So Durant, obviously a better scorer when he was in year six of his career than Tatum is, and Durant's a better overall shooter than Tatum. But Tatum is sort of that Kawhi Durant prototype. He's more interesting or he's more 
comparable to those guys, I should say, than say like the LeBron James type who's controlling the whole game. But he's a better playmaker than both those guys are at that point in their career. Now, I'm not saying he's going to be as great as Durant is. Like Durant was a four-time scoring champ when he was in Oklahoma City. But I'm just saying from a playmaking perspective, it is something that has steadily improved throughout Tatum's career. And I do expect that assist number to be his career high this year, even though it's not there at this particular point in time. One other quick note on Tatum is Tatum is really unselfish in the sense where not a lot of star players are setting off the ball screens. Tatum sets off the ball screens because he knows what the result is going to be. Even Durant has never really been a good screener in his career. If you go back to when he was in Golden State, it was actually when they were running pick and rolls with him and Curry, it was more inverted. Like Curry would set the pick for Durant, not the other way around, where you think of the guy with bigger size or a bigger player would be setting the screen. It was actually Curry. So I do really like that about Tatum, that he's very active off the ball setting screens. Um, Jalen Brown. So last night he has 19 points. He's 0 of 8 from three-point territory. So I'm going to continue to harp on this. And we had this conversation with Michael Pina about Jalen Brown and struggling from deep. Jalen Brown on the season is now shooting 32.5% on threes. 31 players have attempted at least 253s this season, okay? Jalen Brown is 27th in percentage out of that group. The only guys worse than him are Jordan Poole, Jalen Green, Kelly Oubre, and Trey Young, who's having an awful shooting season. Okay, if you flip that around and you look at his two-point percentage, Jalen is shooting 58.9% on twos. 25 players have taken at least 402-point shots this year. Jalen is sixth. Here are the guys in front of him. Durant, who's having like an outstanding season prior to the injury, like one of the greatest shooting seasons we've ever seen. LeBron, who's one of the greatest players in the history of the freaking sport. Jokic, who's a center. Aiton, who's a center. And Zion, who just run people, who runs people over, right? I mean, the guy's a massive individual. Jalen's behind that group. So he's an elite two-point shooter. He's an atrocious three-point shooter. And I just don't get it. At times last night, I'm watching that game. And this isn't meant to be like this huge indictment on Jalen. I'm just like, at times he settles for three when I'm like, just get to the basket. How many times last night did you see Jalen get to the basket and it's easy for him? He goes through guys. He's so strong when he gets to the basket. And even if he gets cut off, we've illustrated he's one of the best mid-range jump shooters in the NBA. In fact, coming into last night, he was third in that particular category. So I don't understand it. Why can't they cut down on the threes with Jalen? Why can't Jalen himself realize how bad these numbers are from three and just get to the basket more and just get to your mid-range game more because you're elite when it comes to that. I just wish you would cut down some of the threes. Okay. I don't know how many more times I'm going to have to do that this year, but please, Stop shooting so many threes if you're Jalen Brown. You're too good to settle for those shots. All right, Grant Williams, by the way, huge game last night. 20 off the bench, five of six on twos. Speaking of twos, Grant's up to 64.6% on twos. Last year, he's at 59.7. Thing that sticks out to me about Grant is he now has this ability to drive closeouts, right? Where Grant Williams cut down in terms of his weight and his ball handling is significantly better. How about the and one he had last night with his left hand? Grant's been a much better finisher and the big thing is everybody knew what the scouting report was for Grant coming into the season, right? One of the best corner three-point shooters in the league, a really elite standstill shooter, if you will, a catch-and-shoot shooter. So what was the next step? He's got to be able to put the ball on the deck, and he's got to be able to score at the basket, and he's done a really good job of that this season. So Grant, at times, he's been up and down this year, but that was a really good game for Grant. I had to point him out because that was one of the better games I've seen him play this season. But it did also make me think of this with the Celtics. Who is the Celtics' third best player, okay? Because we see from night to night, it could be Brogdon one night, it could be Derek White one night, it could be Horford, it could be Robert Williams, it could be any of these guys, it could be Grant Williams. 
So importance is different, right? Because if you're talking about who's the third most important Celtic, I would argue it's Al just because of the health concerns with Robert Williams, right? Think about the start of the season. What happens if you don't have Al? You needed Al Horford to be that stabilizing big man, if you will. And just because of the checkered resume with Rob in terms of his availability, I would argue that Al is the third most important Celtic. Now, you could also argue Al over Smart and Brogdon when it comes to that because you have three guys there, right? Because you have Smart, you have Brogdon, you have Derek White, all really good guards that can defend. Now, you can argue who's the best out of that group, whether it's Brogdon, whether it's Smart, et cetera. But even Pritchard, he can be like your fourth guard. Pritchard got minutes last night. Like Pritchard can play in the league. I'm not putting him in the Smart, Brogdon, White category or anything along those lines, but he can play. So as great as Brogdon has been throughout his career, you made the finals last year when he was playing for the Indiana Pacers, or I guess technically at the end of the year, he wasn't really playing because he was dealing with an injury. But you get my point. Like, okay, if Smart doesn't play, you still have Brogdon and White. If you have an injury to Rob and you don't have Al, you're in massive trouble. So just from an important standpoint, that's why I have Al in front of any of those guards. Honestly, you could make a convincing argument that Grant's is more important than all three of those guards in terms of just the position that he plays, right? Because Grant, we know, is an elite defender that can switch. So he's somebody that can guard forwards. He can guard Durant. I'm not saying he can shut down Durant, but we saw what he did to Giannis last year in the postseason. We saw what he did to Giannis last year, or I should say this past Christmas, right? Grant is one of the best defenders in the league on Giannis Antetokounmpo, and he's also a very versatile defender that can defend wings and with these guards, they can't all the time guard up. So you could actually make an argument that Grant is more important, not better than Brogdon or Smart. You can make an argument that he's more important. But if you're talking about the best, who's the third best player on the Celtics, okay? That to me, and this has been a theme of the show over the past couple of weeks, that's Rob Williams. And I don't think it's even a question that Robert Williams is the third best player on this team. Just go back to the finals last year. When Rob was on the court, the Celtics outscored the Warriors by 30 points, Okay. That was fourth in the series, and the Seas lost 4-2. to two. They were also outscored by 24 points in the series. So it just tells you how impactful Robert Williams is to this team. Nobody can impact the game that Robert Williams does, or nobody can impact the game the way Robert Williams does, outside of the Tatum and Brown category, right? We're talking about the third guy. Outside of Tatum and Brown, nobody has that level of impact like Rob does. I thought the quote from Jalen before the game, and I saw this from Bobby Manning from CLNS, is... This is what Jalen said prior to the game. We need Rob. Rob is amazing. Rob has a special ability on offense and defense. And we've been able to see a little bit of that this year, but especially last year. So the more we integrate him and use him, the better our team will be. Okay. So that to me stuck out where it's like, oh shit, the players realize this now too. Now you always could tell that Tatum loves playing with Rob. Absolutely loves it. He's talked about it on multiple occasions, but you can tell the players now, the two stars, because we know how Tatum has always felt. But Jalen coming out and saying this said something to me like they know how important this guy is. And it does feel like Rob is the piece that puts this team over the top. OK, so if you look at it over the past two years, how impactful he's been. Teams shoot 32.5 percent from three when Rob's on the court, when he's off the court, 35.5 percent. So that's like going from 17th in the league in terms of shooting threes to dead last in the NBA because of the impact Rob has where he actually is blocking three point shots now. This may seem crazy, okay, but this is where I'm at with Robert Williams and the impact he has. So you could not beat the Patriots with a healthy Rob Gronkowski, right? I know they lost some games with Gronk, but the reality is when Gronk was rolling and when Gronk was healthy, the Patriots offense was unstoppable, right? Because there's nothing you could do with Rob Gronkowski. And even if you tried to take him away, you doubled him, et cetera, well, Edelman's going to eat. Amendola's going to eat, or you're going to get going in the running game, right? 
Now, the Patriots could win without Gronk. They did it in 2016. They won the Super Bowl without Rob Gronkowski, right? Because obviously Brady's the best player on the team. But when you had Gronk, you couldn't beat the Patriots, okay? They were nearly impossible to beat when Brady and Gronk were on the field at the same time. Actually, if you look at Brady's numbers with Gronk compared to Brady's numbers without Gronk, it's actually somewhat staggering to just look at those numbers. But anyway, that's for a different day. The Seas can win without Rob. We've seen it, right? I mean, they basically made it to the finals last year in terms of their playoff run without Rob. He wasn't the same guy against the Nets. In that Milwaukee series, he had to sit out games. He wasn't the same guy. So you can make it to the finals. And quite frankly, I believe the Celtics could win a championship without Rob Williams. But right now, the way that the season is sort of playing out across the league, I don't believe that anybody can beat the Celtics in a seven-game series if, of course, knock on wood, Tatum and Brown are healthy and they're there and Robert Williams is there, okay? You have real difficulty covering this Celtics team when Robert Williams is on the court because of the vertical spacing he brings. Nobody else in this team can bring that and because of the impact that he brings on the defensive side of things. So Rob, there's no answer for him. There's no answer for the Celtics with Robert Williams because he makes you an elite defensive team and he actually helps your offense despite the fact that he's a non-shooter because of all the pressure he puts on the rim. Think about the play they ran last night at one point, right? So Rob sets a screen for Tatum at the top of the three-point line. Tatum gets another screen from Al. The defense has no fucking idea what to do because Tatum already got the advantage from the screen from Robert Williams. He's got another screen coming for him. So they jump out, they try to blitz Tatum. Al's going to pop out for a three, right? It's almost like a Spain pick and roll. And Rob just goes to the basket. He gets a wide open dunk. But nobody else on the Celtics would have that level of impact in terms of rolling to the rim because what the defense realizes with Rob is, oh, he can just dunk on us. So it just puts this team on a totally different level. So if we're talking about third best, I really think this is a Gronk-like impact that Robert Williams has in the Celtics team. I don't believe they're beatable in a seven-game series if that guy is healthy. They can still win without him, but if that guy's healthy, you're not beating the Celtics. So it's just been really great to watch this guy get back in the lineup. I'm interested to see what they do from a minutes perspective going forward. Of course, he closed the game the other night against San Antonio, did not close against the Chicago Bulls last night. So Joe Mazzulla is going to be careful in terms of balancing that, just making sure he gets to the finish line, because if that guy gets to the finish line with the two stars in your team, the Celtics are winning the championship. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Srudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. 